glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And then Titus is exhorted in verse 15, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Verses 1 through 10 of Titus 2 are very practical. It's instruction for Christian men and Christian women. Very practical. Paul brings it into perspective by saying, The reason we're teaching folks verses 1 through 10 is because of verses 11 through 14. A principled understanding of salvation brings about practical decisions of life. A principled faith in Jesus Christ is not like some... It's not like philosophy. Here's what philosophy does. People hold philosophy and it normally doesn't touch their living. You can believe whatever you want to in philosophy and do whatever you want. It's not a big deal. But when Christ is your Savior, He changes you. He changes your character. He changes your nature. And the result of that is manifest in how we live. In the book of Titus, one of the themes in the book is good works. But I believe that those two words are going to be used here in verse 14. They're used again in Titus 3, verse 8. We'll see that in a few minutes. And it's a theme throughout the book, good works. But as I began to say in the introduction, there's a tremendous misunderstanding today about good works. Some thinks that good works are bad. No, good works are good. If you go and help shovel your neighbor out of his driveway, that's good. That's a good work. I believe being in church this morning, that's good. If it's a Bible-preaching church, that's good. It's a good work to be here today. If you um, help somebody change their tire on the side of the road, friend, that's good. That's good. It's a good work. If you uh, give out a gospel tract and tell somebody today how they can have their sins forgiven through faith in Christ, that's a good work. Getting baptized for the right reason is a good work. But may I say, God makes it clear, good works cannot get you in a right standing with God. They can't roll your sin debt away. Good works do not cancel bad works. That's so clear in the Bible. And so Paul, giving instruction to the pastor Titus, is giving him instruction how to instruct the people he's preaching to and teaching. And he says, I want them to understand good works. And he'll conclude with those two words in verse 14. But it's got to be in the right context and in the right order. How many of you know that order matters? Yeah, I'm in a season in my life. The Lord is really emphasizing this concept of order, trying to teach me some things. I want to learn. I don't know how well I'm learning, but I want to. Order is very important. I would say this. Anybody that builds a house knows that order is important. Brother Pope, I don't know why, but when you guys started on this project, you tore the walls down first, and then you built the platform. I don't understand. Don't you think they should have built all this around the wall and then torn the wall down? Or do you think order matters? Now, some of you didn't see it with the wall before. You said, I don't know. But the rest of us understand if he'd done that, it would be a mess. And we understand that if you're going to uh, assemble a vehicle, you don't start with the tires and the wheels. That's the last thing. Not the first. 
order matters. Some would say, well, because the wheels go on last, they don't, doesn't matter. No, they're very important. They just got to be in their proper place. Good works this morning are not the foundation of salvation. They're the fruit of it. Don't miss what I'm telling you. We meet people all of the time who are people who do a lot of good works. I believe this community is filled with people who do good works. I mean, you watch somebody in this community get cancer or their house burned down, and folks will rally around that person and do good works. That doesn't make our community righteous. It means we do good works. Good works are not a redeeming, they are not a redeeming price for our sins. I've heard a number of the men in this church who witness use this so appropriately many times. If you've committed a crime, you've robbed a store and stolen something out of there, and you stand before the judge, and the judge says, Are you guilty or not guilty? So I'm guilty, I did it. But you don't understand, Judge, since I committed that larceny, you don't understand how many good things I've done. I bet I've, I bet I've given ten times more than I've stolen. The judge says, oh, well, I didn't know that. You may go. Right? Does it work that way? No, the judge says, you know, I appreciate your giving, but it doesn't change the fact that you're a thief. You committed a crime. You have to be penalized for your crime. May I say this? We go about trying to do good and do good works and cancel our bad, Anybody that's trying to cancel their sin by good works, if they'd get honest with themselves and with God for a few minutes and say it's not working. If good works cancel sin debt, then you should have a clear conscience if you're doing good works. You should be able to get to a point where you say, now I've done enough good works that God will pardon the sins I've committed against him. I'm okay. I've never met anybody who's relying on their good works that has reached that point. Say, are you sure that you're going to heaven? Are you sure that you are right with God? Are you sure that you are saved from his wrath? And they say, these three words, I hope so. May I say this? If you are relying on your good works to redeem you, the best you can get is I hope so. If you're relying on the work of Jesus Christ, notice these two words, for you, you can be sure it's done. It's settled. It's finished. That's what he said on the cross. Now, I'm going to give you a few points out of Titus 2.14 that go around this subject. Now, Paul, again, he's writing to people who have already come to personal faith in Jesus Christ to help them understand what Christ had done for them. But you can be here this morning, and perhaps that's not your assurance, and God can give you understanding through his word. Let's look at verse 14 again. Let's look at it in context with verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope. That's what we looked at in Sunday school, the promise of Christ's return. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's going to talk about Jesus Christ in verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Many times I've preached this text and preached verse 14 as part of the message. Looking at verse 14 this morning, and in verse 14 there's an entire message for us. I want you to see four things that are in verse 14 uh, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ and regarding those he gave himself for. Number one, he begins with the presentation of himself. Many people treat the the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, especially those who hate God, will say, well, what father would make his son do such a thing? If you've read your Bible and understand the truth of it, you know God the Father didn't make Jesus do that. The Bible says he gave 
himself. It says that repeatedly. Paul says in Galatians that the Lord Jesus gave himself for the Apostle Paul, uh, meaning Christ offered up his own life in our place. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. The Lord Jesus would reference this matter of how his life was going to be taken. And John 10 is the great chapter about the Lord Jesus being the shepherd of the sheep and us being his sheep who believe in him. And he says this in uh, verse 15 of John chapter 10. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's that concept again. He doesn't ask the sheep to lay down their lives for him. He lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 16, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Verse 17. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I laid down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. I don't want you to miss this concept, because herein is the love of God made known or manifest that God gave us His only begotten Son. What God the Father did, He has only one human that was born of Him through another human, uh, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one person was born and could say that God was their Father by natural birth, and that's Jesus Christ. And he having lived a sinless life, when God the Father gave up Jesus Christ to pay for our sins, he gave up the best. When Jesus Christ was offered for our sins, God the Father had one... Don't forget this. Jesus is God, but also remember this. He put aside his deity to become man. I don't mean put it aside and that he ceased to be God. I mean he laid aside his majesty. I shouldn't say lay aside his deity. That's a false statement. He laid aside his majesty in heaven. He put aside some of the attributes of deity that he might become us. Got a question. Jesus is God or Jesus is man? He's both. We understand and know that he is God. He's our creator. But don't forget that God became man and the word became flesh. So when the Lord Jesus Christ was offered up on the cross and laid, was given for our sins, God the Father gave up the only human on planet earth that was in perfect fellowship with him. Of all the millions of people on earth when Jesus died, only one was completely and entirely pleasing to God the Father. And that's Jesus Christ. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. My point is this. God the Father gave is an act of love to offer up the Son, but that's not all. God the Son, Jesus Christ, could have said no to the cross and been completely right in so doing. He had no, He didn't deserve the cross. But the Bible says, who gave himself for us. God the Father wanted to save humanity. And God the Son, being one with God the Father, said, I'll go. And He came and took on human flesh and died in our place. One of the reasons I personally and so many love Isaiah 53, 4, 5, and 6 so much is because it is such a perfect picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ did when He came to earth and died for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've been saved most of your life, 
You need to be reminded that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. I need to be, you know what motivates me today to please God? I don't want God, I don't want God today to be displeased with my speech. I'm preaching to you this morning. When I get done, you may or may not like the message. And that's neither here nor there. You may say, oh, pastor, I was well done. I appreciate that. Some may say, oh, I didn't understand a word he said. You know what I want this morning? I want when I'm done for God to say, son, that's what I called you to do. I'm pleased with that. Why? Because I'm trying to earn my way to God and get Him to like me and forgive me for the wrongs I've done? No! Because Jesus died for me. He suffered greatly in my place. Listen, my lies, my hypocrisy, my pride, my filthiness, all of that the Lord Jesus took on Him when He died. I know that was 2,000 years ago, but I believe with all of my heart that what he suffered 2,000 years ago, my sins helped put him there. I don't think he just generally died for the world. He did, but that includes me. My transgressions, my iniquities put nails in his hands, thorns on his head, and turned the blessing of God in heaven away from him that I won't have to be judged someday. That's the simplicity, but the greatness of the gospel. This is why it's such a grievous sin to reject Jesus Christ. You reject the law of God, and that's a sin. That's a grievous sin called rebellion. You reject Jesus Christ, friend, you are now rejecting more than righteousness. You're rejecting righteous love. The world today has rejected true love and accepted false love. The Bible says, in this was manifested the love of God that God gave and Himself and died for us. First John 3.16 repeats what John 3.16 says. And the fact of the matter is, is Titus is reminding, and Paul's reminding Titus, you remind the people that are believers there that Christ gave Himself for us. Now look, if you would, at Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, this very well-known verse, where Paul says this, I am crucified with Christ. Talking about his old sinful flesh, his old sinful man, by faith in Christ, his old sinful ways were crucified and his sinful self crucified with Christ. Now I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. Again, Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love. What is, how does God, God loved us before the Lord Jesus ever came to earth. Is this true? Of course he did. He created us. He loved us. But how did God commend his love? If I were going to say, Steve, I love you, my friend. Well, that's great. Words are nice. How can I demonstrate and show Steve my love for him? Well, if he's sick in the middle of the night, he says, Pastor, I feel terrible. And I say, I'll drop whatever I'm doing and rush over there and help. That's, that's a start. If I'm willing to lay my life down for a few minutes to help, God says, I love you, and here's how I'm going to commend that to you. Here's how I'm going to... If we're going to commend someone, we would write something to say, this is who they are, and this is what they can... This is why they can be trusted. God commended or demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Meaning while we were still disobeying and ignoring God, pretending He doesn't exist or pretending we don't care about what He has to say or not caring about what He has to say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
I got news for you. I wouldn't want to die for somebody that was spitting in my face. But he did. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This this truth that we find in Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us speaks of the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Uh, He gave himself as a sacrificial substitute, meaning the sins of all mankind were placed on him. The judgment for those sins were placed on him. I quoted part of Isaiah 53. I want to actually turn there and read those verses so I don't butcher them up. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Many looked on Jesus the day he died and said, I wonder what he did so bad. Many still think that. We need to get this settled. Truth be told, number one, did Jesus exist as a man on this earth? Is he God? How many sins did he commit in his human life on earth? Then we must answer this question, then why did he die? Because he was bad or because we are? Don't miss it this morning. The, The epic event of all human history was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the event that divides all of human history. You can say what you want, but it it is. And he either died because he was bad or he died because we are. There's no in-between. He did not die because he is bad. The Bible says he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. But he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Do you know, by the way, who's writing this? The great prophet Isaiah Most of us can't hold a candle to his righteousness and holiness as a man of God. Isaiah did everything God told him to do as a preacher. He was a faithful man, but he said, but he, speaking prophetically of Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Transgression is doing the things we should not. Iniquity is not doing the things we should. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, that's judgment for sin, The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Can I get some testimony this morning? Who would be willing to stand and say, not me? I've never turned to my own way. I've always done things God's way. Any takers? Would anybody be so bold to stand this morning and say, the record of my life is I've never done things my way instead of God's way? When we do things our own way instead of God's way, it's called sin. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of how many of us? Us all. Hebrews 2.9 said that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for every man. There's not a human being ever been born or will be born or has been born and died that the death of Christ on the cross, he did not taste death for. Meaning, Jesus took the sin debt of the entire human race on himself when he died. Now, friends, that's the fact of heaven. That's not a preacher's idea. That's the word of God. He became our sacrificial substitute. I want to read you quickly three verses in 1 Peter before we move on into the message. 1 Peter chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 
I'm talking first of all to Titus 2.14, who gave himself. This speaks of the presentation of Christ for us. First Peter 2.21 says this, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, verse 23, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. How many have ever heard of a pilgrimage to Mecca? Heard of that? That's what Muslims do. How many know the kind of suffering some of those folks have to go through to do that? You know what they're doing? They are suffering for their God, hoping to obtain righteousness. You cannot obtain righteousness through suffering for God. God suffered for you. Righteousness is not obtained through what we do for God. It's obtained through what He did for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. I'd encourage you, jot that verse down and meditate on that one for a while. Christ hath also also hath once suffered for sins, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Three times in First Peter the Bible tells us Christ suffered for us. We're coming into the season of Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, where we are wise to think about the resurrection. May I say this? I don't believe a day goes by you shouldn't think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because He lives, we can live. You see, His death paid your sin debt, but His life gives you life and strength. And so this morning, the Lord gave Himself for us as a sacrifice, as our substitute. He offered Himself up to God in our place One last text before we move on to our next point. Ephesians chapter 5. Again, instruction being given to believers, but we're reminded of what Christ did for us. May I say this? As a child of God this morning, if you're saved, you've been born again. You'll never live a life pleasing to the Lord until you get a hold of this truth. And, And may I say it better, until the truth gets a hold of you. When you realize that there's nothing you have done, will do, or ever shall do, and you can lay hold of what Christ truly paid to set you free from sin to forgive you, then the heart is bent with gratitude to say, then, Lord, I'll do anything you want. If you did that for me, I'll do whatever you want. Not because we're earning anything, but because we love him, because he loved us first. Ephesians 5, 1 says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself, here's those two words again, for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. Jesus Christ offered himself to God, the perfect sinless sacrifice to pay for our sins. So Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us. That speaks of the presentation of Christ to God for our sins. Then it goes on to say in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, why? That he might redeem us from all iniquity. I love to ask this today. Preached a message last Sunday on what it means to be saved Someone says, I'm saved. Good follow-up question is, from what? What did God save you from? And certainly, if He saved us from our sins, He saved us from 
eternal damnation, eternal hell, no doubt. But you know, Jesus came to redeem us from all iniquity. I mean, here's, here's the thing. If I hold the attitude, well, sin really is not so bad. And if I could do it and get by with it, I'd just keep right on. Something's wrong there. You know, repentance, that's a Bible word. When Jesus Christ gets a hold of our heart, through faith, he brings us to repentance. And repentance is agreeing with God about sin. You see, Jesus did not come to give us permission to sin, but to save us from its power. We must understand this morning, sin is a slave driver. I don't care what sin it is. Uh, speaking to some of the fellows in the jail this week, we were talking about uh, the idea of the Lord's ability to save to the uttermost. Jesus said in John chapter 8, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. This concept is throughout the Bible. What happens is sin appeals to us. Does it not? It's called temptation. And what happens is we think, how could something so appealing be bad? If it's so pleasurable and so appealing, how could it be bad? Now, one sin may appeal to you and another sin may appeal to me, but sin is any disobedience to God. And often we get all miffed at God because we think something like this. He just doesn't want me to have any fun. He just wants to deliver you from what destroys you. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Now, sin holds you in a twofold manner. It holds you through what we would call addiction, meaning there's a pleasure in sin that I can't get loose from it because it always pulls me back. That's one aspect of sin's hold on you. You can't break free from its binding hold on you because of the pleasure it brings. Here's the other way sin will hold you. You may say, I'm sick of it. I agree with God. It's bad. I don't want it. But I cannot escape what I know is coming because of it. Sin will hold you not only through the addictive power of its pleasure, it will hold you through the guilt that is wrought by it being committed. Now, i say this. Guilt is not a bad thing, but it's not intended to remain God allows us to have guilt. It's like pain. Here, a while back, I had a few health issues. Had a sinus infection. Had some pain going on. It was secondary pain. I didn't know what was going on. I had chest pain. Had arm pain. All that stuff. You know, what's going on here? Well, come to find out, I had a sinus infection. I wasn't getting enough oxygen. That's all it was. Cleared that up. I feel better. But I'm glad I had pain. It told me something was wrong. You know what guilt is? It is the pain that comes from disobeying God. And it tells you something is wrong. Jesus Christ came to redeem you from iniquity. He came to redeem you not into or to permit, but to liberate us from it. This idea of redemption has a twofold meaning, forgiveness and freedom. You can go throughout Scripture, and that's really what it has to do with it. The Lord purchased us through His death and shed blood. Iniquity was our master. Sin was our master. It had a hold on us. But Jesus came so that we might no longer serve sin, but serve God. Here, I found this in my own life. Even as a saved person, there came a point where there were disobediences, sins in my life. And I said, you know, I'm really sick of that sin. And I'm really sick of that sin. And I don't want to do that anymore because it grieves me so bad. And I want to be free from that. But this one doesn't seem to be so bad. So I'm going to try to be done with these and hang on to this one. Does anybody relate with me this morning or am I just all on an island to myself? 
Now, I was already born again. God had already saved me. But I was learning what it meant to be saved and how I ought to conduct myself as a saved person. And I thought, no, no, I want to hang on to this. So I agreed with God about these sins. Boy, I hate those. And I would say, oh, God, help me. Take that away. Help me overcome this temptation. But over here, I was holding on to some things, some iniquity. No, he came to redeem me from all iniquity. And by the way, I was already redeemed. And what I'm trying to say to you this morning is the Lord Jesus came to save us from sin. Sin is evil. Any sin. We, we justify sin. We say, well, we have to. There are folks today uh, who uh, live together unmarried, living in fornication. Well, the tax credit is better if you don't get married. It's still sin. Yes? But it hurts the finances. Hey, money's not God. God is God. So what are you trying to say this morning? I'm trying to say this. Jesus gave himself for a purpose. And it wasn't so we can feel warm, fuzzy feelings. It was because sin was our master. When Adam committed sin in the garden, he thrust mankind into prison. Every child after that was born subject to sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And God sent Christ to get us on the same page with Him that, look, sin ruined my relationship with you, but I'm willing to come in the person of Jesus and take care of your sin once and for all. That's what Hebrews says, once and for all. And so He came to redeem us from all iniquity. And again, this deals with a couple of things, forgiveness and freedom. Look very quickly, would it? Ephesians chapter 1. We can have God's forgiveness because of what Christ did. It's not something you can explain academically. It's something that's a fact spiritually, and it becomes imparted to us when we take God at His word by faith. Our forgiveness of sins, God is willing to forgive us. We saw last week that God would have all men to be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He would have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. Remember, the grace of God hath appeared to all men, meaning God's grace is available to all men. And so today, God wants you to be saved, but we must come on His terms. We have God's forgiveness not because we deserve it, but because Jesus Christ earned it. And we get God's forgiveness when we do one simple thing. Boy, man, man has such a hard time with this simple truth. When I trust Jesus Christ, God forgives me because of my faith. God says, the condition you must meet before I'll forgive your sins is trust what my son did for you. And when we do that, we have the forgiveness of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, in whom we have redemption. All right, that purchasing out of sin as, as bondage. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Here it is. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You know what forgiveness does? It liberates you. It liberates you. If, let's say, Steve, I'm just going to keep picking on you. You're right here close. And let's say I get mad at Steve one day. And I say, you know what? I don't like that truck he drives anymore. I'm going to go and decorate it. And I get a key and I get some spray paint and I decorate Steve's truck. And I think, I hope he doesn't know who did that. I just want to mess his truck up. I'll show him. I don't know why I would, but we'll just say I was mad at you. Steve comes out and says, who messed my truck up? Somebody says, I saw a pastor over there. Now, the next time I see Steve, I want to just come up and greet him. Hey, good morning. Is that what's going to happen? No, Steve's bigger than me. It's not going to happen that way. I'm going to avoid him if I can. I'm going to live in fear of him. I'm going to live in fear of, is he going to show up and mess my truck up? Is he going to show up and mess me up? 
because I'm the one that did wrong to him. And listen, from our earliest ages, our conscience registers, I know God did not want me to respond to my dad that way, but I did, and I know God's not pleased. You know what we do? We start avoiding God. I don't want anything to do with him. And all of a sudden, we are controlled by our guilt and our sin. It's our master. Here's what happens. You commit a sin, you think, I don't ever want to do that again. And then you commit it again, you say, you know what? I don't really want to do that again, but it wasn't as bad that time as it was the other time. Then you commit it again, you lie about it then. And you start to realize, you know what? I can get used to this. I don't like this sinning thing, but hey, I can't help it. I might as well enjoy it. You're a slave. Are you with me this morning? The Lord Jesus Christ came to say, you have sinned against me. And God's wrath, by the way, as we saw last Sunday, is on us because of our sins. But no one wants to save you from his wrath more than he does. He gave his son so that you can have all the sins you've committed against him removed. When you know within your conscience, based on God's own word, that your sins are no longer being held against you, you know what that does? It frees you. Forgiveness gives you freedom. If I go to Steve and I say, Steve, I'm a fool. He says, yes, you are. You scratched my truck. Now, is he being mean, unkind? It's the truth. I should have never done what I did your truck. He said, you're right. You shouldn't have. That was wrong. I said, I got a problem. I want to pay to have your truck repainted, but I don't have a penny to my name. And I'll do anything I can to pay you back. And Steve says, you know what? You should have never done it. And I ought to take it out of your hide, but I can see you're truly repentant. You're forgiven. What does forgiven mean at that point? What do I owe him? Nothing. When you put your faith in Christ, what else do you owe God? Nothing. Not in the sense of redeeming. Your, your price is paid. All you owe him now is gratitude. <laughs> Are you with me? That's called freedom. Next time I see Steve, he says, you know, I'm going to be working on my truck today. You know what I'd say if I'm truly repentant? May I please help? Please, can I help? Would you let me? Sure he would. You know what? God forgave me for my sins. And there came a day I said, oh, God. As a little boy, I put my trust in him. As a teenage boy, I began to realize what that meant. And I mishandled the grace I'd been given. I said, oh, God, I've been so wrong. You know what? I am not worthy that you should have anything to do with me, but will you let me help? That's the difference. We're not, we're not serving out of bondage. We've been set free by what Christ did for us. I don't, when I trust Christ, He already paid my sin debt. It's done. It's paid in full. We could give illustrations all morning, but I think the Bible is so clear that He came that we might have forgiveness so that we might be freed. Not a servant and a slave to sin, but a servant to God. Romans chapter 6, very quickly, and we'll move to the rest of the message. Romans chapter 6. I wish, number one, unsaved people who are trusting their religion could lay hold of this. Number two, I wish saved people who've been pardoned but misunderstand and misappropriate the grace of God could get a hold of what Christ did for us. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we also should walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, meaning you put your trust in His death for the payment of your sins, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Look at verse 11. Likewise reckon you also yourselves be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Reign means control you, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. If we move on down, verse 17, he says, For God, be, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered, which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. May I ask you before we move forward in the finality of this message today, do you see righteousness as your enemy and, object, uh, enemy and foe or your friend and objective? Do you see sin as your friend and companion or as your enemy? Christ came to help me see sin as my enemy. And he gave his very life's blood to set me free from it. You know why many don't appreciate the gospel today? Sin is still a friend. The death of Jesus Christ ought to change my attitude about iniquity, shouldn't it? Everything he suffered is because of my sin. Can you imagine today if my children and I were on a hike and I said, now look, we've got to be careful. There's some ice and snow up here on this trail. We've got to be careful. And one of my little guys starts goofing around. I said, look, 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 hey, 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 you've got to be careful. And he says, okay. And, but he wants to have fun. He starts goofing around. And I said, look, you're... We're going to have to go back. If you don't stop that, we're going to slide off the side of the hill. Next thing you know, he starts playing around. He doesn't believe me that he needs to be careful. And he disobeys and messes around again, slides over the edge and falls down on a bluff. And he's hanging just barely. And Boy, I jump down there and go to rescue him. And in the process of rescuing him, I get him out, but I break almost every bone in my body. We go back and... I'm barely alive and my little one comes to visit me in the hospital and he says, Dad, how, how you doing? I said, oh, I hurt. My legs are broken. My back is broken. I don't think I'll ever be able to walk again. He says, can we go hiking again? I was having so much fun. You think he got a hold of what I suffered for his sin? You listen. My disobedience and yours and disregard for God, disobedience to parents, immorality, uncleanness, drunkenness and drinking, and all of that put nails in the Savior's hands, thorns on His head, stripes on His back, caused God the Father to look away from Him. How could we take lightly what did that to Him if He's our Savior? He came to redeem us, to set us free from the hold of sin on us. Friend, today are you serving sin or serving the Savior? He gave Himself. He gave Himself. Why? That He might redeem us from all iniquity, from that enemy of disobedience and sin. I meet people today and they're proud to be rebels against God. How can they say they know Christ? How can we rebel against God and say, I appreciate what Jesus did for me? And thumb our nose. No, look, He came to save us from that, to redeem us from all iniquity. Oh, I'm glad he did. I'm glad that today when sin comes breathing down my neck and tempting me like it does to you and me, I can say, ah, but I have a Savior. You used to rule me, but not anymore. He's my Savior. 
He already paid my sin debt. I'm not guilty anymore. And He lives inside of me to give me power to overcome. I'm happy today about having Jesus Christ as my living Savior this morning. I can't say it to you any more sincerely. So you sure are loud. I'm happy today. I'm glad that I have someone who has done for me what I cannot do for myself. I'm, I'm delighted with the grace of God today. That I don't have to obey sin. I don't have to have its guilt hanging over me because He gave Himself for me. We've seen the presentation of Himself. He gave Himself for us. The purchase that He made that He might redeem us from all iniquity. The purification that He accomplishes. Look at Titus 2.14 again. A couple of quick points will be done. Titus 2.14, Who gave himself for us, that is the presentation of himself, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. That's the purchase that he made with his own blood to set us free from sin and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Through his purchase, he set, when we put our faith in Christ, he delivers us, he breaks the shackles of sin off of us and we become his. He purifies through His shed blood. He washes our sins clean in the sight of God. That's instantaneous, by the way. When I put my faith in Christ, the Bible says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in the sight of God, I am now His child, no more His enemy. But may I say this has a twofold meaning. There is the purification in the sight of God. There's purification in the sight of men. He saved me. To pur- Was I pure when Jesus got me? No way. But now I've been washed in His blood. I'm set apart. I'm different. And He saved me that He might purify in Himself and you, if you're saved this morning, a peculiar people. Now, when I say the word peculiar, you think weird. And to the world, we're weird. But that's not what it means here. I looked up the definition of the word peculiar in the Webster's Dictionary. It means this, appropriate or belonging to a person and to him only. Almost every writer has a peculiar style. Most men have manners peculiar to themselves. It means to be singular or particular. There's something peculiar in someone's depo- in their deportment. Uh, so the idea of being peculiar is not just unique. It means we are uniquely belonging to Jesus Christ. We belong to Him. My wife is peculiar, meaning she's only my wife. And I'm only her husband. This morning, if I'm saved, guess who I belong to? Jesus Christ. He bought me. He purified unto himself. Meaning, he said, you belong to sin, but because you've trusted me, I've bought you out of sin through what I did for you, and now you belong to me. I am his purchased possession. If you've put your trust in him, you're his purchased possession this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And by the way, he purchased us to purify us, to set us apart from the world to cleanness. Meaning, it's what we looked at Romans 6, to redeem us from all iniquity, to set us free from the power of sin in our lives, but to purify in himself through what he did to get the world off of us. You'll notice when the children of Israel come out of Egypt, God got them out of the world. But for the next 40 years, he had to work at getting the world out of them. If God has saved you this morning, he's doing a work of purification. He's changing you, preparing you to come into his very presence. Verse Corinthians six nineteen. Why? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God? Look at verse 20. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are, and apostrophe S notes, possession, which are God's. 
Christ saved me. I put my trust in Him as a little child, and I praise God. He saved me, and He has begun, he begun a work then, and He has performed that work until this very day. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. When Jesus prayed for His disciples in John 7.17, He made it clear He's not praying for them only, but also for us who would believe through their word. So his prayer in John 17 was not only a prayer for the disciples then, but for us too. And he said this to the Father, sanctify them, meaning set them, set them apart from a defiled world through holiness. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Psalm 119.9 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Ephesians 5, likening the marriage relationship to Christ and the church, says the husband should love his wife as Christ also loved the church, that he might sanctify it and wash it with the washing of water by the word. If your Christ's possession today is working to purify your life, to make you distinctly his own. You know what I believe? There are those people who are part of cults and you can look and say, well, I, you can obviously tell what cult they're a part of. They're a part of some man, completely man-built, man-made movement. I believe the Lord wants us to be so in tune with him and so affected by his word that it's clear we belong to Him. That's what it means to be a peculiar people. Let me put it to you this way. Some of you who don't know me well, if I told you you have nine children in this building, and you looked at me and you looked at my wife, and you said, I think I could pick out which ones are yours. Now, you're going to use a number of criteria to do that. They're going to bear our image in their physical flesh, but you're also going to watch how they walk, how they talk, how they interact with their mom and I, and by and by, I think most of you who maybe even don't even know me hardly at all could say, yep, that one's yours, and that one's yours, and that one's yours, and that one's yours. We've stamped them, right? They're like us. We live together. We, they, they follow our mannerisms. You know what happens when you walk with the Lord who saved you? You become like Him. So much so that someone says, you're one of those, aren't you? You're a Christian. It shouldn't be, look, you know what my goal is not? I don't want somebody to say, oh, you're one of those Baptists. And that's fine. People ought to see Christ in us. We have been purchased as a peculiar people. So in his purification of us, we are possessed as his people. So we are a possessed people, purchased with his blood. We are a peculiar people, meaning we are owned, but we're not owned by multiple entities or multiple persons. The person who is saved is owned only by one, Jesus Christ. We are uniquely his own. Now, when someone owns something else, what does that give them? That gives them full authority to determine how that thing is used. Right? How many of you would do this today? No, we, we don't, thank God, we don't practice slavery in this country anymore. And there's reasons for that. Men don't make good owners of men. Have we found that out by experience? Men don't do a good job owning other men. You know what we do? We use them for our own advantage. I understand there's some exceptions to that rule. How many of you would willingly sell yourself to somebody to become their property? Jeff, I'm going to sell me to you. I'll be your property. And Jeff buys me. What does that give Jeff a right to do? I'm his property, just like his pickup truck, just like his barn. I belong to him. Just humans are a little more useful than pickup trucks. Right? I don't know about, I, Jeff, I love you, but I'm not going to sell myself to you, nor would I advise you do that to me. But you know what? You can trust Christ in that way. How many of us have sold ourselves to sin? How did it treat you? 
Sin has never treated anybody right. Never. And who's the author of sin? Satan is. But you know what? You can be bought by Christ and he'll never, ever, ever mistreat you, not one time. As his possession, he has a right to rule our lives, but even as such, he says, but present your bodies. Meaning he owns them, but he says, but if I'm going to use them, you've got to willingly surrender. Final point this morning. Who gave himself for us. That's the presentation of himself. That he might redeem us. That is the, the purchase price he made from all iniquity. The purification of us. That, he might, uh, uh, that we might be a peculiar people. That he might purify unto himself a peculiar people. Through his buying us, through his death and shed blood. Finally, that we might have a passion for him. Who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from all iniquity. And purifying himself a peculiar people. What's the final phrase? Zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purifying himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. You know where zeal for good works comes from? Understanding he died for me. I am forgiven for my sins. I am freed from sin because of what he did for me when he died and shed his blood. I now belong to him instead of belonging to Satan and sin and because of that I have a fervency to do what is good in his sight. You know where zealousy for good works comes from? An appreciation from what Christ did for you. Paul said, The love of Christ constraineth us, for we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which loved them and gave himself for them. You know where the zeal for witnessing comes from? The zeal for prayer comes from? You know what will keep a fire burning in you? I've got to pray today. If I don't, I might not be saved. No. I know I'm saved. I've got to pray today because the one who died for me said, watch and pray. And if he died for me, surely I can live for him. Zealous of good works. What are you hot about today? What's fervent in your heart? What's, what stirs a flame in you today? I'll be honest with you. There are very few people fervent about good works in our day, including saved people. Hard to get people stirred up over anything more than politics and money. People have heard about politics, fervent about guns, fervent about a lot of stuff. What about good works? He purified, he, he bought us that he might redeem us, set us free from iniquity, forgive us. He did so that he might purify us so we might be his own, zealous of good works, a passion for what is right. This deals with fervency and faithfulness. Let me give you a fi- some final verses about good works. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men. We've been dealing with a series of messages on Sunday night about the Christian and his or her body. And I believe one of the reasons we don't let our faith touch our body is because once we do, men can see it. They can see it. At that point, people know where we stand and who we are loyal to. You with me? But Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which in heaven is in heaven. See, good works is not about obtaining your salvation. It's about glorifying God. It's about revealing, I can only do good works because Christ saved me. So our works are to be seen of men to glorify God. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God, meaning you've already come to faith in Christ, 
might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Christ died. We're not. We get it backwards. We do good works that he might own us, that we might be his. No, no. He paid for our sins already without us doing anything for him. He offers eternal life and forgiveness of sins freely. But when you've received it, you know what it ought to do? Light a fire in you to do what he wants. To be zealous of good works. Tell me this, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. What was wrong with the Laodicean church? Lukewarm. The word hot there means zeal. They weren't hot and they weren't cold. They didn't hate God and the things of God, but they didn't love Him either. They weren't rebelling, but they weren't surrendering. You with me? God says, I saved you that I might purify unto myself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Say, what do I do? Now, I say this this morning. It is very likely that there's many souls in this auditorium this morning that good works is not really what you're zealous about. Very possible. Very possible that there's a number of individuals in this room this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say you're saved by grace through faith. You say, I know exactly. I remember when God brought all this to my understanding and brought me to faith through his word and I trusted him and he saved me and he gave me assurance of that. So you may be here this morning and say, I know I'm saved. I have received the grace of God. I know that I belong to him, but I feel very indifferent about good works. I feel very indifferent about doing what I know is right. Is that, miss, is the first judgment we need to make is this. That's not appropriate. If I'm saved and I'm not zealous of good works, it's like saying you're running 104 fever or like saying you're running 93.5. Something's wrong. Fred, would that be a problem? Yeah. You're not, you're not hot or cold. There is a, there's something wrong when the saved person is indifferent about doing right. Indifferent about doing what is good in the sight of God. God saved us, yes, to redeem us. Yes, to purify us unto himself. But finally, and it is in order, that we might also be zealous of good works. This morning you say, I'm not. I'm not faithfully doing what is good because I'm not fervent about it. I have found in my own life the best place to start is to go to God and say, Lord, there are good things you told me to do. And to be honest with you, I am very indifferent and careless about it. I could take it or leave it. I mean, it's like telling the Lord that when we know that's not what he wants. We can trust him. He's our savior. Good place to start. Say, Lord, I'm not zealous. I'm not where I ought to be. You may be here this morning and say, you know what? Based on what I'm hearing this morning, this is not the way I've understood eternal life or salvation. I've been trusting my good works. May I say this? If you enter into the presence of God trusting your good works to get his forgiveness, you're going to be cast out. God will not accept us on our good works. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. I don't know your heart this morning. I do not. But I do know that the author of the book who gave this message this morning does. And I trust he's making application as God's word is preached. We have an invitation in just a moment. Braden's going to come play on the piano. We'll have heads bowed and eyes closed. You may be sitting here saying, I have some questions. You may feel comfortable coming when the song is played. You may not. May I say this? 
If you have questions about what you've heard preached today, sincere questions, say, I want some answers. I love to talk to folks who are just wanting to hear what the Lord has to say. Please, find me. I'll be standing out by the door. Say, Pastor, I'd like to talk. I'll stay after. I'll skip lunch. I don't care. I'll talk to you. If you're a lady, we're going to ladies talk to you. But maybe God, through the preaching today, is trying to show you you're not ready for eternity. Your sins are not forgiven. You're trusting yourself, not Christ. Don't leave without getting that settled. Messages are preached not so we can just get in content, but that we can make decisions of faith. You may be here this morning, you're saved, so you know what, I know I'm saved, but I've not understood how I'm purchased and how I'm supposed to be passionate about the things of God. And I'm not where I'm supposed to be, and I know that. Can I encourage you? Find a place here in a moment when the piano's played. Get on your knees, talk to the Lord, tell Him what, he's, what He needs to hear, what he, what he ought to hear. If you're wrong, tell Him so. Ask His forgiveness, and then get some counsel about how to do what's right. If you need to speak to me, you can come and speak to me during the time the song's played. Braden, you come on if you would. Have a song of invitation. Do that or find me afterwards. But please, if you need help, something's unsettled in your mind, don't leave without getting that.